This is Technically Legal, a podcast about legal technology, innovation in the legal industry, and the impact tech is having on the law. I'm Chad Main, the founder of legal services company Percipient. And on this episode, I talked to Scott Stevenson. He's the co-founder of Spellbook, which is an AI co-pilot for transactional lawyers that plugs into Microsoft Word. Today's episode is a great conversation with Spellbook co-founder Scott Stevenson, and a lot of it has to do with the intersection of technology and creativity. Spellbook is an AI contract co-pilot that plugs into Word. Despite being the founder of a legal tech company, Scott is not a lawyer, but is a computer engineer by training. Scott got into computers because as a kid, he was really into video games, and in the fourth grade, he talked his parents into getting him a computer because he wanted to figure out for himself how to make video games. By middle school, he was building websites, and eventually he landed an internship at Electronic Arts. We will hear, too, that Scott is also interested in electronic music and that he launched his first startup with one of his university music professors. The company is called Mune, and it was founded to create a whole new musical instrument that combined the power of digital music with acoustic music. It's a really interesting instrument, and if you search for Mune music online, you can find it. There's a great video I encourage you to check out. So the Mune team raised a little bit of money, but pretty quickly figured out that maybe building a niche music instrument may not necessarily lead to startup riches. However, it was during the Mune days that Scott started to think about building a legal tech company. That happened right after he got his first legal bill and figured out there might be a more efficient and less expensive way to get legal work done. So, as they say, he made a pivot and he founded Rally with a lawyer friend of his. Rally was a document automation and templating engine for law firms, but it later begat Spellbook, an AI-powered drafting and reviewing tool that plugs into Microsoft Word for transactional lawyers. But here's the funny thing about Spellbook. The idea itself was originally conceived as a marketing idea to generate leads for Rally, but now Spellbook lives on and Rally has taken a back seat. Got my first computer in uh, probably grade, I was in grade four, I remember. And uh, it was pretty young. It was a PC with uh, two gigabytes of uh, disk space. And uh, I was very into video games at the time. So I think that was kind of the big thing for me that got me interested in uh, computers and technology. I had like Super Nintendo at the time and I loved playing games. And I just fantasized about making games myself for a right. large part of my youth. So starting in grade four, I always just wanted to make games. I would look, I was very young. I had no idea what I was doing. I'd look online. How do you make games? How do you, and the people would say, well, you have to learn a program. You have to learn C++. So I'd ask my mom to, you know, pick up a C++ book, which, you know, probably didn't digest very well at that age. <laughs> By the time I was in middle school, I had done some kind of web development, a little bit of web development in grade six, like HTML and stuff like that. And then by middle school, I was starting to hack together little little games and things like that. You know, nothing very significant, but uh, that was kind of my initial, the initial thing that got me into. And then, you know, much later I ended up, you know, working for Electronic Arts is like one of my first, I kind of sort of internships, you know, in, in Vancouver it was, you know, I spent almost a year there um, working with them on, you know, working on games and game engines, stuff like that. I was, you know, during university. So that was kind of one of the first uh, things that got me really interested in programming and tech. It sounds like your parents were supportive. Were they tech savvy? Were they in the computers at all? Or is this something you, you got into on your own? They actually were not really. No. Yeah. I would say they, uh, you know, my dad was skeptical. My mom pushed, yeah, <laughs> I heard the story, you know, my mom pushed like, oh, I think computers are going to get bored. My mom was a, worked at a library, so they had to use computers pretty early on there, right. I guess, to catalog, but she just, she worked in the cataloging department and they had computers pretty early to help manage, you know, thousands and thousands of books at the library. So she was like, I think computers are going to be important. So, you know, she kind of pushed, 
I guess us to get one. My dad was not so sure. <laughs> it didn't take long for me to know more about the computer than they did. I got to talk to you about, is it pronounced Mune or Moon? How do you pronounce that? Mune, yeah. Mune. The idea stems from electroacoustic composition, which is, if I understand right, a combination of traditional instruments and electronic instruments. Is that right? That's right, yeah. Are you a musician also? Yeah, so that was the other you know, thing that got me very interested in the programming and, and technology is uh, I was really interested in, I picked up guitar when I was pretty young. I just like, I love making things. I love creating things. I love with music or games or whatever. I just wanted to make stuff. And um, I was interested in that. And then I was interested in electronic music. And then, um, yeah, also in university, I was working with a music professor. His name is Dr. Andrew Salen. He's also a composer and he's done some amazing work. He had identified this problem where he was trying to bring electronic music into to the classical audience of so people who you know, sit down and watch an ensemble play on stage music or an orchestra or whatever. And he was trying to you know, introduce more electronic synthesized sounds and processing to that audience. And it's really hard for them to get it because to them, the electronic musician just looks like a person behind the stage, you know, right. messing with some knobs and they just look like a DJ or something. You've seen that meme, right? It's a picture yeah. of a DJ yeah. and it's like, come see my laptop live. And there's like tens of thousands of people in front of them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think like to that classical audience, especially, you know, people are like, they just pushing play. Like, what are they, what do they do? Are they, yeah. they have iTunes open and they're pushing play. Like what, what's that person doing? And so uh, we work together to kind of, build an electronic instrument that could be appreciated and the audience could really see the cause and effect of what's going on. And um, that was cool. I watched the video. It's really cool. Yeah. And it's, it's uh, M-U-N-E.com, correct? The video is still uh, available music, there. M-U-N-E music.com. Yeah. Yeah. And I will put a, I'll put a link <laughs> to that in the show notes, but describe what it is because it's really cool and really versatile. It's sort of like the body of a guitar without the neck. And it's this thing that you can, it's made of wood. So we wanted to feel like an acoustic instrument and you can kind of Put it, hold it on your lap, similarly to a guitar. Yeah, it, it, it had it contours. It had yeah, contours it has contours style. around it. Um, yeah, it's sound. Um, and again, yeah, you can use it for a bunch of things. You can use it for, um, you know, triggering samples or like drum sounds, things like that. You can use it to control the volume of different tracks for mixing type things. You can uh, use it to play notes and things like that too. So it's just like a very versatile electronic instrument because electronic music, you can do all sorts of things that you can't, you know, do in the acoustic world whether you can play drums or you can play notes or things like that. Um, but in the package, it felt very tactile and very feels like as a musician, like you actually have a relationship with this instrument and the audience also kind of is able to have that relationship, seeing you play it and watching the cause and effect of what you do. And uh, yeah, it has lights in it. It was kind of a, you know, cool hybrid design. I think of, you know, elements of traditional instruments and the wooden design, but also the, you know, it has white LEDs and stuff in it too, which look kind of cool. The last question, because I could talk about music stuff forever. The video of the person sitting down, but did it have a strap? Because it seems to me, you know, you could get a strap on it and like the guitar, you could get on stage and mess around or something. Yeah, we actually did have a strap as well. So yeah, you can, you can put on the strap if you want to stand with it or use it different ways or you cannot use a strap, but yeah, it does have a strap as well. Yeah. But working... At that startup, it kind of ultimately leads to Spellbuck. You launch a company called Rally. And I heard part of the Genesis story was you guys were spending a lot of money on lawyers at Mune. And you said, man, there's got to be a better way for startups to do this. Yeah, so Mune was kind of ended up being my first company. You know, it was a little bit naive. I don't know how big the market is for kind of niche electronic music instruments, but I was very passionate about it. And people really thought this thing was cool. I don't think you should give up on it either. No, we're, oh, we're going back. Yeah. 
I still love it. And yeah, there's still these units kicking around. They're still used in different capacities. But myself and this professor worked on this and then we actually spun it. It was the my first job after, we say university in Canada, college. And yeah, first job after college was, um, you know, actually working on this instrument. We spun it out. We did the whole tech transfer thing that a lot of universities have. And we set up a company, my first company ever. And we raised a, a tiny amount of angel money from a uh, previous boss of mine and uh, tried to really commercialize this thing. And, um, you know, I didn't have much money at all at the time. I had not much savings as a, as a student and a new grad. To raise a very small amount of angel money, but to me it was a lot of money because when you're a student and you graduate, it, right. doesn't, it doesn't you don't need much. You're okay living on ramen noodles or whatever, like, and you don't need a nice place. So I didn't need much, but I, I needed something to keep myself going and to keep the company going. There is a little bit of angel money, and before we knew it, we actually had a bill, legal bills that added up to like half of the money in our bank account. And I was just like, what the heck just happened? And so to be clear, I'm not a lawyer. My co-founder, Daniel, is the lawyer at Rally, which became Spellbook. I was from the technical side and I was just like, whoa, what just happened? I'm just set up a basic company, did some basic IP work. We did a design patent as well, which may, you know, maybe we shouldn't have done that. But, you know, we didn't do that much. And before we knew it, you know, we had some pretty big bills. So that was part of the, uh, you know, inspiration for wanting to start a legal tech company. It was like, you know, people should just be able to start a company and protect their IP for reasonable amounts of money. Rally was a document template yep. creation application, right? In between, I worked for another company. I was the director of engineering at a totally unrelated company. But yeah, I had this thing in my head. It was like, ah, oh, man, like there has to be a, a, a way to make legal work, a transactional and corporate legal work more efficient. But that led us to starting Rally. So um, Rally was a document automation and templating engine. I would say we were, again, still pretty naive. Like, I'll be very honest. Like, we were naive and, and actually wrong on a lot of stuff. Like, I was wrong to start, I was wrong to start a niche electronic music instrument company. There wasn't, there's not that much. <laughs> yeah, <weird. laughs> but. You know, it's not a great business model, but it was fun. But you learned from that. I learned a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was young and that, we'll get back to it someday, uh, at least as a hobby project. But um, I was also very naive about how hard it is to, yeah. be a lawyer, how hard that work actually is. I'll be honest, I, I was frustrated at the time. I was like, ah, oh, we'll just write software and templates. And then I was very naive. I was like, oh, no, I don't need lawyers anywhere after this. And we were dead wrong on that. That was very stupid. And we're like, oh, we'll, we'll make a really good templating engine and that's going to speed everything up. You know, of course, people have been working on document automation since the 1970s. This is not new. Right. Lawyers know about document automation and templating. Hot Docs came out in like 1996 or 1993. You know, it wasn't a super new idea, but we, you know, we kind of naively dove into it. And actually, firms did take it up. We sold that technology to like 200 law firms. We sold our, our web-based doc automation platform called Rally. We had some unique elements where you could send questionnaires to your clients to help gather your info, which would then feed into our doc automation engine to help you produce the docs that you needed. But I think us and every other doc auto company was not even the same way, which is like, the work that lawyers do often is very bespoke. You know, no deal is the same, especially if you're at a law firm. You know, every client's needs are so different. The paper you're working with is so different. Maybe if you're an in-house team, you can really standardize things really well. Or in your case, you work with a lot of in-house teams. But if you're at a firm, which was our primary customers, putting in the time to build out all these precedents and templates, and then you just get bespoke deal after bespoke deal come across your desk, it's, um, it's pretty tough. So people would buy this technology and they would say like, we really need this, you know, doc automation in a long time. We want to adopt it more, you know, then we'd be like, 
they would purchase the product and um, then it would take them like a year to gather all their precedents together and right. to like actually, you know, get all their templates uh, set up and everything. Then they'd be like, you know what, this is awesome. But, you know, my work is a little bit too bespoke. What years was Rally? Around 2018, we started kind of getting it moving. Hello. It wasn't until 2019 until we raised our first round of venture capital and kind of had our first employees and stuff like that. When we come back after the break, Scott tells us how the marketing idea to generate leads for Rally turned into a spellbook and changed the direction of the company. I'm Chad Main, and you're listening to Technically Legal. This podcast is brought to you by Percipient, a legal services company powered by technology. Percipient helps legal teams tackle legal operations, electronic document review, and process automation. Percipient services include managed document review, subpoena compliance, cyber incident response, and also helps legal teams provide clients with process-driven legal support. To learn more, visit percipient.co. Percipient. Legal services powered by technology. Then I read something interesting. You said that Spellbook was initially just kind of a, a lead magnet. You thought you were just messing around with it, <laughs> and that becomes a product. Did, did I misread that? No, that's correct, yeah. So then in uh, 2022, we launched Spellbook. So Spellbook was our generative AI co-pilot for transactional lawyers and um, built right into Microsoft Word. can help you draft new clauses for your agreements, review and find issues in your agreements and things like that. We kind of want to just throw it out there as being like the first company that launched sort of a real large language model generative AI based tool for lawyers. And yeah, we thought it would be a lead magnet. We thought it would just get us some attention and get some leads and it would just be a little side project. Yeah. What was the vision? Like, all right, they're using our word add in. How would you then push them to rally? What was the thinking there? We didn't think that far ahead, really. We just thought, hey, there's an opportunity here to make a splash and we think there's something cool here. So, hey, well, if they sign up for Spellbook, well, we can also get in touch and tell them about Rally. You guys were really ahead of the game because I think originally it was built on GPT-2, right? That's right. Yeah. So the very first version of GPT-2, they were not quite there. So we didn't fully push that out. But as soon as um, you know GPT-3 was available, we started getting much better results. And then we pushed it out. And yeah, we, we pushed this out before ChatGPT, really before any other generative AI legal product that I've come across, we, we had it out there. It was summer of 2022, so it was still close when it was fully right. launched. So it was pretty close to ChatGPT, which I think came out in November 2022 um, or October. What do you attribute to being so far ahead of the curve? Like, How did you guys even know to go and look at these large language models, specifically GPT-2? Like, how'd that get on your radar? Yeah. I mean, I think it's the value of our company is to, you know, try to stay ahead of things and to always, we, we want to try to ship today what's going to, you know, be other companies might be shipping in two years. And that's just kind of built into our culture. So we build things really quick. Um, and we just try to suck in as much information as we can about what's going on out there. Yeah. I'm pretty plugged into like uh, Twitter or X, if you want to call it that, you know, and that that's definitely where I think you see a lot of these tech trends to almost I, you almost count it to the T. It's almost two years in advance. You see people toying with technology before it ends up in commercial products in, in like, I would say, like tech Twitter. And so something now I would say that you see on Twitter is now people are toying with AI that actually controls the mouse on your desktop and moves between multiple applications and stuff like that. That's oh, something that I think is, you know, within two years, we're going to now see that in probably illegal tech products where you can have an email open from a client and you can be like, hey, um, help me draft a response to this client and also download their attachment and do X, Y, and Z to it. And AI will actually go and do those things. So like, 
that's just an example of how like um, in tech Twitter, you tend to see kind of these early signs of this sort of stuff. Does that example you gave right there obviate the need for some APIs? Like, because it's just using the native yeah. apps in your computer, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. So this means AI will be able to access pretty much anything uh, that runs on your computer um, very soon. So that's interesting. I digress. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about Spellbook though. You, sure. as, as you mentioned, it is an add-on to Microsoft Word, but you know, I, I meet you at the bar, you're sitting next to me and you say, Hey, I'm a co-founder of a legal tech company called Spellbook. And I say, Hey, what's your app do? We're an AI co-pilot for transactional lawyers that um, really helps you draft and review uh, contracts. That's, that's our bread and butter. So we can help you find that clause or language from past language you, you drafted or we can generate a clause that can kind of fit an agreement to meet your specs. We can also help you review agreements. And I would say our most popular thing that we do today is you can provide any instruction like, you know, I want to negotiate this agreement for my client and make sure that their data is kept secure. And Spellbook will take that instruction and actually redline the whole document using track changes in Word to actually make a whole bunch of concrete suggestions throughout your document about what language you might want to push for or modify. And they're just at their suggestions. They're just, they're just like, you know, accept changes. You got to say, hey, that's You cool. got to accept changes. Yeah. But it will give you those direct suggestions of you should change X, change Y, change Z. Another cool thing too is you can highlight a clause and say, hey, protect our data, but be aggressive. And it, it will change the way it thinks about the clause. Exactly. You can uh, highlight a clause or a section and say, rewrite it based on these instructions or yeah, make this aggressive, make the sound more professional, make this sound less like legalese, all that sort of stuff we can do as well. Explain how you can bake that in your own advice into Spellbook so that when it goes to redline the contract, it is changing the jurisdiction to Delaware. It is making the indemnity neutral. Great question. Yeah. So we do have the concept of playbooks within our review feature. So if there is a common type of way that you review an MSA or things that you're looking for in an MSA, you can actually save a set of instructions um, that you can then run again and again against your agreements. Um, we also have something called our clause library, where you can actually connect all of the previous docs that you've drafted or worked with, and we'll parse it out and, and say like, oh, you've used this clause like 20 times before and you know help you surface that clause if you uh, need it in the future. Now, let's talk about the real bespoke stuff. Let's say you are you practice an area law that's really technical. Patent license agreement or something there, and there's some real obscure language you like to use every time that maybe, you know, the average AI is not familiar with it because just hasn't been trained enough on it. How does Spellbook deal with that? Like, If you see this clause or something similar to it, please redline it thus. So you can use our playbooks feature for that. So you could write that as an instruction in your playbook to say, um, if you see X, then do Y. That's definitely a way to do it. We have a new beta feature we call policies, which is a little bit different. The playbooks are really geared towards redlining a document and making changes. Our policies are more of a quick check. And this is something we're just about to roll out over the next um, month or so. But the policies are really like, what are kind of your checks and balances you want to do on every agreement of type X? And so we're going to have that ability too, where you can build your own policy that you use again and again and kind of get a score of how many of your checks are passing or failing or um, things like that. So that's something else we'll be launching. Another thing I think is important to point out, I think you've got some strong opinions on this based of, upon you know, my review, some articles and podcasts you did getting ready for today. Really important to point out that you guys made a conscious decision to add this to Word. Meet lawyers where they work because you figured out, and I agree with this, 100 million percent that you should meet, especially lawyers, because they don't like new apps, where they work, meet them in their own workflow. 
Yeah, it's such a good question and such a good point. I mean, the reason we've heard it out is because we did the other way, the wrong way for so long. With the Rally product, I mean, we built our whole web application where we'd take lawyers out of their normal workflow to our own UI. You know, we banged our head on the wall with that for years of being like, oh, you know, lawyers should want to come in here to do their work or they should want to draft their documents in here. And uh, we just saw how hard it was to change the habits and like people just didn't want to go to yet another app. But lawyers wouldn't say that to us. What took us years to figure this out is like, and I don't think this is just a lawyer thing, by the way, either. I think it's, you know, everyone is too inundated with different apps, different, right. You know, we have such busy lives, you know, introducing some other whole new element to your workflow is so tiresome and difficult for anyone these days. But people won't tell you that, you know, people will say, oh yeah, that sounds easy. I'm happy to use it. This looks great. I'm, I'm, you know, you'll always get good feedback showing this to users. But when you actually look at the usage patterns, like, you know, is this customer still using the product three months after they bought it? That's where the truth, you see the truth right. of, are people able to actually change their habits? And, um, you know, it's kind of unfortunate because a lot of law firms think it's their problem. That's like, oh, it's my fault. Like, I'm bad. I, I should have changed my habits by now. And, it's, and then we, you realize it's actually just, it's a problem in the segment as a whole. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And, and in software as a whole, you know, people are sick of jumping between so many different apps. So, yeah, we, we very much, our whole company is based around the idea of, Lawyers know how to ride a bicycle. Let's give them an electric bicycle. So nothing changes. They just are able to pedal faster and have this wind at their back that helps them do what they do better. They know how to do their job and they know the tools they like. They don't want to radically stop using Microsoft Word or something, go into some word replacement, which a lot of right. know, tech companies have tried to build. It's worked out well for our users, I think, uh, very well. So a related question to that, though, and for good reason, many in legal and nothing just outside legal in general are a little worried that they just can't throw a sensitive contract into chat GBT. So I know you're getting this question all the time, the concern like, well, I can't put my client's data in an app. I don't know where it's going. How does Spellbook protect that information? How do you allay the fears of your users about that risk? Really good question. And something that's like super, super important to us. I think there's a few things that we do today to make this very secure. Right? And yeah, lawyers are, have some of the most sensitive data in the world. So this is really important. Number one, we don't actually store any of your data or documents unless you want to in say your playbooks or things like that, but you can completely opt out of any data storage whatsoever. So all that happens is your data gets encrypted, goes over the wire, we get a response back and it's fed to you and no data is kept or stored by us. So that is one way that you know sensitive customers are able to use our software. On the other side of things, some customers do want us to kind of learn or kind of train other data as they go. We're able to do that while de-identifying the data and removing all of the key and sensitive information. Um, so if they do want to go a little deeper and have the AI learn their preferences and say store their clauses in our library over time, we can fully de-identify the data and um, remove key sensitive information in PII from anything that is kept or used for training. So those things are important. The other thing I would mention though is... Um, one thing I saw the other day is like, if you are using, say, any Microsoft Office 365 products, there is a list of all the third-party providers that they say your data could be sent to, and it's 300 parties long. So if you're, <laughs> yeah. if you're using like, you know, Office 365 or Outlook 365, Microsoft has 300 other parties that they say right. they could be sending your data to. So just keep that in mind that I'd say we're much more locked down than that. 
significantly more and um, implement a lot of best practices for security and privacy of client data. So a couple of years ago, I think you raised 10 or 11 million bucks. And then just not too long ago, I think it was this month you announced you raised another 20 million. Early 2022, uh, we raised our first 10 million. And then about a year later now, we have just raised 20 million US. So two questions. Why did you go back and raise more money? And second part of the question is, now you got this 20 million bucks. What's the plan for it? How are you going to utilize it to grow the company? So number one, uh, you know, things were just going exceptionally well. We grew 10x in terms of the number of lawyers that were on board last year. So that was just unprecedented level of growth, especially during kind of the current landscape in tech, I would say. A lot of tech companies are not doing as well. So we just had uh, incredible growth last year, growing to yeah around 1,700 law firms and in-house legal teams. That caused one of our existing investors to Inovia. Um, so they're, I think, the biggest VC fund in Canada. They had put in a smaller check into our earlier round and they said, you know what, we, we really want to kind of triple down on this. It's going super well and we want you to accelerate into it. So, uh, yeah, we had a lot of growth. So a lot of growing pains too. You know, we're trying to figure out how to service a couple thousand customers all of a sudden. So yeah, we wanted to raise the capital to help support uh, that growth and help support our customers and help provide them all the features and things that they're all asking for. How are we going to use the money? Number one is on product development. I think AI is advancing so quickly right now that um, any product team in the space has to be innovating very quickly to bring that value to their customers as fast as possible. So we have a long list of new features and functionality that we're bringing to the product to make it uh, great. Um, in terms of what that is, it's you know making these things more accurate and very resistant to any kind of hallucination that's always on everyone's mind. There's a lot that can be done to make these systems very accurate for lawyers. So that's a big part of it. Personalization is another big pillar for us. So enabling the systems to learn your style and preferences over time as you're working and to use your language and to do things your way is another important pillar for us. And um, branching out beyond Word to other workflows is something else that we're doing. What do you mean by that? Kind of that example I gave earlier, like you get an email from a client and they send you an attachment and you want to you know, draft a response and review the attachment. We can actually help you pick up some of the work at that point. Um, and help coordinate from there. So, um, yeah, there, there's a bunch of things we're working on there. And yeah, we're, of course, growing our support team and success team, growing our sales team. And um, we're currently booking around 500 meetings per week with prospective customers. So I feel like wow. that's wow. all we have to support. Yeah. You say you surveyed five lawyers to come up with the name Spellbook. And that worked out great. Saved a lot of time. Where'd the name come from? And what about the name do you think resonated with these lawyers you talked to? I had a post on LinkedIn or something talking about how like we make decisions with very low sample sizes and we find that if we're, you know, you can always reverse these decisions, but like, yeah, well, we've picked the name Spellbook. Yeah. We, uh, we had a handful of different names. We, I don't know, we just pulled them out of the ether, to be honest. I don't know where it came from really. You should have used GPT. My buddy's kid was making a business real obscure. And I went in there and chat GPT. I said, Hey, give us some names. It gave us like 20 great names. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's a great idea. The product felt magical and we kind of wanted to feel like a sidekick to the lawyer. So we're, we're kind of like, how do you make this feel like a sidekick to the lawyer? But not, we also never wanted to feel like it's replacing the lawyer because that's really not what we're about. We want to be a tool right. for the lawyer, not like, oh, this is the AI that's going to take over your job. You know, that's never what we're, we actually are strongly in the camp that like human lawyers are going to be very needed for a very long time. So how do we create a, something that feels like a tool that's magical that can support of the lawyer and give them superpowers. And so, um, yeah, I think that's where Spellbook came from. And I think, um, 
No, we also have an inkling that like a lot of lawyers that uh, we knew love reading like high fantasy novels and, and, and fiction. So they had that often growing up, you know, a, a lot of lawyers enjoyed just reading fiction and, and fantasy novels. So like we thought that there might be a little bit of a resonance there. <laughs> well, Scott, appreciate your time. People want to learn more about Spellbook, get a hold of you. Where do you want to send them? Spellbook.legal. That's our website. And you can also email me at scott at spellbook.legal as well. Okay, that's a wrap for today's episode. As always, we really appreciate you listening. If you want to subscribe, you can find us on most major podcast platforms like Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, etc. Also, if you like us enough, I hope you leave us a favorable review. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this has been Technically Legal.